everybody. <laughs> Hi. Hi, everybody. Oh, thank you. Happy summer. Um, I'm Sarah Loman. I write the blog Four Pounds Flower. I'm Jonathan Soma, and I run the Brooklyn Brainery. How's your summer been, Soma? Good, gelatinous. That's what we're talking about today, Jello and friends. So it will be some Jello. It will be some non-Jello. Yeah, other gel- gelatinousy things. Other gelatinousy things. The the ooeys and the gooeys and the wigglies and the jigglies <laughs> is what I've been saying. <laughs> All of those. I'm yeah. of course doing the history of, and someone's going to do science. Science and weird stuff. So. I actually wanted to start right here because this is the image that we used for MSG. And what that is a photo is is punch jelly. And punch jelly is the original jello shot. There have been gelatinized alcoholic beverages before this, but it was wine and champagne. And this is the first one on record that uses spirits. It comes from the first cocktail guide ever published, Jerry Thomas's How to Mix Drinks from 1862. It contains lemonade, cognac, and rum. And if you had any illusions that people in the past were somehow better than us, classier, more well-behaved, I'm going to shatter that for you right now. Here is what Jerry Thomas, bartender and author of this recipe, has to say about it. This preparation is a very agreeable refreshment on a cold night, but should be used in moderation. The strength of the punch is so artfully concealed by its admixture with the gelatine that many persons, particularly of the softer sex, have been tempted to partake so plentifully of it as to render themselves somewhat unfit for waltzing or quadrilling after supper. Ain't that the truth? Um, You can find a modernized recipe for this on my blog. Um, It's... Not bad, it's not good, it is strong, I will tell you that. And I've tried to make it a couple different ways, trying to follow the recipe as accurately as possible, and it's consistently tasted the same. So um, I wouldn't say it stands on its own, but you can kind of please your friends with the oldest jello shot. Um, what's interesting about this recipe, though, is that it does not really call for gelatin, not the powdered packaged stuff that we use today. In 1862, it called for isinglass or calf's foot jelly. <laughs> You're wincing already. I feel like my job is just to come up here and horrify with history. So let's talk about what you make from a calf's foot. Because <laughs> this is what predates Knox gelatin, or actually in a way is a contemporary of it. Um, the patent for uh, Knox gelatin, for powdered gelatin, actually came out in the 1840s, but people were used to this method. They said it's more laborsome, but it's more nutritious. People didn't really like powdered gelatin for a while. Um, gelatin is made from cartilage, essentially. Um, today, it's mostly made from pig and cow skins and cow bones. You boil those all together and you get gelatin. Um, But something like a a calf's foot contains a lot of those little connectors and tissues and things that make a good gelatin product. It's very laborious. You have to boil it for six or seven hours. The whole time you have to keep skimming the top to clear 
get to call the imperfections scum, I think is better what it's called. Then you have to let it cool, and then you separate the broth from the gelatin. Then you boil it again, this time with crushed up whole eggs, which helps to clarify it again. Then you take out the gelatin and put it in a jelly bag, and you gotta let it drip. And that's how you get what they refer to as a jelly stock. So that, in one way, is how you would get gelatin. The disadvantage of gelatin from this method is that it has this inherent taste of beef. So when you're flavoring it, you have to make it very highly flavored because it never loses that disassociation from calves' feet. The alternative at this time was called Isinglass because it is crazy looking stuff. The first time I ordered this, I was like digging through this box going, where is the Isinglass? Digging through like all this packing material. And then I realized that the packing material is actually the Isinglass. Isinglass is extracted from the swim bladders of sturgeon. That's where the highest quality comes from. But in the middle of the 19th century, they developed a method to extract it from cod as well. For whatever reason, in their swim bladders, it also has a lot of cartilage. as a very similar substance inside. So you can extract it, you can dry it, you can see it here shredded and kind of molded in different ways. And then you can dissolve this in a saucepan with hot water, and it has the same effect as a calf's foot jelly. I've used this before, I've cooked with it. This is what it ends up looking like. Um, interestingly, it doesn't have the same texture as a mammal gelatin. It's closer, I would say, to like an agar agar, where it's like um, fruit leather instead. And again, this also has to be highly flavored because when you're cooking it, it smells like the ocean. So the dessert itself, which in a way is kind of romantic, but it also tastes like wine, lemon, and the ocean, which is kind of weird. So these were the problems with the early gelatin. Problems, I mean, in a way, it's what people were used to. Not uh, everyday people were making it because it was so labor intensive. It was really supposed to be something fancy to show off or show off the skill of your servants. But in 1845, this guy changes the scene. This is Peter Cooper of Cooper Union. He is a dreamboat to me. Because he is so smart, and he never went to school, so he started a school which to this day is tuition-free. If you get in, you always go there tuition-free. And he was this crazy inventor. And one of the things that he invented in 1845 was powder gelatin. He advertised it as portable gelatin. It was the first gelatin product where you didn't have to clarify it. It wasn't laborious. It was simply powdered, and you added a sufficient quantity of hot water, and that's how you got a jello product. Um, okay, so I have a story, a legend, let's call it, about Peter Cooper and this Jello, which um, I've, unable to, I've been unable to confirm its accuracy, but it makes sense in the historic context. Okay, so 1845, he gets the patent. There's a slow rise in popularity over the 19th century. As more and more people are consuming this homemade gelatin, which makes it easy for anyone to have gelatin, there's also a decline in something else in New York dead horses. New York for a very long time had a tremendous trouble with dead horses being left on the street. This photo is from 1895, and those children, yes, are playing around that dead horse, who has clearly been dead there a number of days. There's this great book out called the New York City Museum of Complaint, and it's a collection of 132 letters written to the mayor between 1751 and 1969. One of these letters from 1888 says, 
A dead horse is waiting to be taken away for the last 24 hours in front of 41 Henry Street. The stench is unbearable. And people in the neighborhood, of which I am one, were forced to sleep with closed windows last night. Not a pleasant thing, I assure you. So this is an issue. At this time, gelatin was made um, from, well, they could have been made from horse's bones. It commonly was. And if there was money in horse carcasses, whereas here, your horse died, you left it there. It wasn't your responsibility to clean it up. It was the cities, and who knows if the city would come. But if there's money to be made, that meant there were scavengers traveling the streets, picking up these dead horses to turn them into gelatin. So Peter Cooper, in a roundabout way, did the city a public service. Again, I can't confirm the truth in this, but it makes sense in the context of the time. So that's my disgusting story by Peter Cooper. So people are trying to figure out, well, why doesn't this powder gelatin, why isn't it popular? Why are people, you know, 1862 was that first recipe, and they're still recommending calves foot jelly and isinglass. What can we do to make people buy this powdered boxed product? The next step came in 1897. Everyone knows this. J-E-L-L-O. This is one of the original boxes for cherry jello. And it was first developed by Pearl Waite and his wife, who came up with the idea of taking the powdered gelatin and adding fruit flavors and sugar to it. They tried, uh, as they might, to sell it. And they couldn't for some reason. It never, ever, ever became very popular. So a couple of years later, just after the turn of the century, they sold it to a man with the incredible name of um, Orator Woodward. And he, too, tried and tried and tried as he might to try to sell this jello. No one was buying it. And they had this revelation. This is 1904. And convenient food is something that is just starting to be developed and released at the turn of the century. Housewives are just learning to turn to a box or a bag instead of making everything from scratch. So you have this instant dessert that all you had to add was water. And housewives didn't really get it. They were like, and then what do you do with it? It's like, no, you just put water in it, and that's done. They're like, and then I don't, I don't understand it. Where's, where's the calf's feet that I have to boil for six hours? So what they did is they realized they had to teach people to use their product. So in 1904, they released the very first Jell-O recipe book. Um, it's cute. Here's its little cover. And what's interesting about it is that many of the molds develop, um, many of the molds reflect ice cream making trends at the time. Ice cream molds at the turn of the century were, when they were done at home, would often be very fancy. Notice the watermelon mold in this one with the watermelon gelatin. You go as far as to put raisins in the middle to um, make it look like that there's seeds inside. Um, and notice too the Oranges that are hollowed out and that have orange jelly put inside too, that's also very much kind of an ice cream making format. On the bottom here, just this little top peeking out is something called Charlotte Russe, which is like would be jellied cream with ladyfingers stuck to the sides. I got really intrigued by the history of jello in the 20th century, because it really is a 20th century product. And I realized that over time, I collected quite a bit of ephemera, little jello pamphlets of recipes from the past 100 years. So last summer, one of the weeks when it was hot as balls, I decided to try these recipes out. And I started with this 1904 jello pamphlet, and I started with the vanilla ice cream mold that you see number five up there. 
looks like this after it's done. In the book, it's called Philadelphia Ice Cream. And what you do is you take vanilla ice cream. I used a can of, uh, an empty can of Italian-style breadcrumbs. Went to the store, bought my ice cream. Since it had been hot as balls all that week, it was melted by the time I got home. So I just put it into the mold and hollowed out something in the middle. And into the middle, I put peach jello, although that was not one of the original 1904 flavors. Um, strawberry, raspberry, lemon, and chocolate were. And uh, then froze, folded in some sliced bananas. And when you popped it out the next day, it looked like this. So these early recipes very much speak to ice cream. And this was pretty good. The big problem I had, though, was that the jello and the ice cream thawed at different rates. So we ate the ice cream and it was soft, but then there was this ice like block of jello in the middle. So the recipe in the end was kind of a fail. So that's 1904. The next pamphlet that I happened to have was from 1922 called At Home Everywhere. Um, it's kind of cute. It, it travels the United States and talks about how even in mission country, monks can make gelatin. And even in Alaska, you can make gelatin. And this bear is going to eat your gelatin. Like, it's kind of charming like that. It featured a technique which I'd never seen before with gelatin, which called for whipping it until it was fluffy, which is, that's the same way you make marshmallows. You take gelatin and you whip it, whip it, whip it, whip it until it's big and aerated and fluffy. And here they, they would do that with jello, and in this case you'd fold in cooked rice. Now I know it seems a little weird at first, but when I made it I was like, oh, maybe it'll be like rice pudding. So I got my lemon jello, as the recipe told me to do, and I whipped it and whipped it and whipped it, and then I folded in cooked rice because, I don't know, because I'm an idiot, and then I let it set in my bunt pan, and it was, it was not the delicious whip that the recipe book pr promised. It was too, too sweet lemon jello that just kind of crumbled around these dry pieces of rice. So that was fairly miserable. And I'm not going to lie, it only got worse from this point. <laughs> Thrifty Jello Recipes, 1933. The pamphlet is populated by elegant women, like the one you can see here, dining over Jello. Not just desserts, not just appetizing salads, but as you can see, entrees, cucumber tang relish. Wait, let me give you some other examples. Uh, uh, molded crab meat. Chicken mousse. But if you look really close, you can see what she and her husband, Beau, are dining on is actually... <laughs> Corned beef loaf, which I like how, as horrible as this recipe is, someone was so indignant that it used lemon jello. Please. The part I want to point out about this recipe is that, yes, it does use, it does use lemon jello. In fact, lime jello had not been released yet. So I feel like lime jello is the classic jello flavor for horrifying mid-century molds. <laughs> but predating lime, we turn to lemon, which would be the natural complement to corned beef, of course. And notice that instead of using just plain water, you, in fact, use beef stock to make your jello. Oh, I should also note that the uh, glorified rice recipe, one of the direction was salt to taste, which until that moment I had never considered in my jello how much salt I enjoy in it. And then also, of course, became an issue while I was making the corned beef loaf. So 
I diligently made my jello with the beef stock and the Worcestershire sauce and folded in the Dijon mustard as I was required. And uh, I turned to canned corned beef because this is a convenience recipe. I'm not going to grind my own corned beef. Open up the can. I don't know if you've ever opened up a can of corned beef, but it, it looks and smells quite a bit like cat food. Not to condemn the, the fine people at Dinty Moore, but I don't know who they're selling that product to. Whatever. Mix it together, put it in a mold. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. Now, looking back at this, I'm proud of my jello making abilities. I mean, it looks exactly how it was supposed to look. Look, this photo is so close to the drawing. <laughs> which, which, again, is, in the end, is what puzzles me. Did someone actually make this? Did someone test this in a test kitchen before it was printed in that book and ended up on my dinner table a century later? I ate it, as is what we do. The taste and the texture were difficult to describe. <laughs> the best way that I can uh, explain it is if you would take a moment to imagine making lemon jello and then putting corned beef in it. <laughs> I didn't, I ate one bite. We'll get a little bit better in a sense, just for the moment. Um, this is a 1934 pamphlet, which is very famous, because it's Jack and Mary as in Jack Benny. They had a radio show that Jell-O bought in the 1930s, and that is when um, the J-E-L-L-O jingle originated with Jack Benny. So they released this very, very famous um, Jell-O recipe book. And the recipes in it weren't bad. As you can see, we're kind of moving towards what we think of as a Jell-O mold, kind of a more modern idea. It's the, the inserts, they're wacky shenanigans that I found borderline disturbing. I think it's, she makes a joke. And then I feel like his reaction is out of proportion. One more like that, Mary, and Papa will take you outside. It makes me uncomfortable. And then this is the only one that gets slightly weirder. Jack beckons to Mary. Come on, Mary. I've made some swell ice cream all by myself. Jack Benny would like to show you a couple of neat tricks, too. It like, makes me warm. It's so uncomfortable. One of the recipes is for another technique that I'd never considered with Jell-O before, and that's Jell-O ices. You make Jell-O, and in this case, I use raspberry Jell-O and stirred in frozen raspberries, and then put it in my ice cream maker. Um, it's interesting, too, because at this time, people making ice cream were being accused of adulterating their products with gelatin, you know, using um, not a hot, just using milk as opposed to milk and cream and adding gelatin so that it formed together. And here we have ice cream made entirely from gelatin. It was not bad. The mouthfeel was strange. It was very, very smooth. It wasn't all gritty like a sorbet. So there's that one. We move to this one. Um, okay, so I have a collection of papers that date from between 1935 and 1955. And this one I do believe is from the middle of the 1940s and was clipped out of a newspaper. And this is really beginning to look like what we picture of as a jello mold from the middle of the century. Now, what I find interesting about this is that my question is are people really eating, are people really making these recipes? That always 
just boggles my mind. And in this case, this is proof. Somebody was looking through the newspaper and said, that looks delicious. I'm going to clip that out. I'm going to save it. I'm going to make it in my kitchen. I'm going to feed it to my family. And that is kind of living proof that somebody <laughs> was making this. It's a Neapolitan mold of lime jello with pineapple, Kraft mayonnaise mixed with cream cheese and walnuts, and strawberry jello. You, you top it with another healthy dollop of mayonnaise. <laughs> and for some reason, I can only blame myself. <laughs> because I was like, well, maybe this will be good. It was so salty. It was just like salty mayonnaise jello. And this is the point where it just... <laughs> It kind of begins to blow my mind because people were making these. By 1930, it was so popular to make jello molds or congealed salads in American food that they, the jello responded with savory flavors of gelatin. In the 30s, you could have bought celery, Italian mixed vegetable, and seasoned, seasoned tomato. On the jello website, it followed up this quote with, These savory flavors have since been discontinued. No shit, jello. Lime jello, by the way, smells like fabuloso, what they used to clean bathrooms with, and it kind of tastes like it too. And while I was making this recipe, my roommate at the time walked in and he picked up the recipe, read it over, put it on the kitchen table and said, Loman, what the fuck is wrong with you? My response after making this recipe is, what the fuck is wrong with you, Jello? Why would you do this to us? It only gets worse. Here's the joys of Jello from 1962, which is the Jello heyday, right? This is like the, the crowning of Jello molds. A few examples. That one has uh, cauliflower and tomatoes in it. I don't know, oranges? I'm not even sure. This one's a little bit worse. You put shrimp in the middle of it. <laughs> and the one I ended up making is the one front and center vegetable trio. It's beautiful in a way. And I, maybe that was part of the appeal in the middle of the century. Because layering jello is, it makes you feel great. You're like the, the kitchen chemist. You get to see all these layers come together and it's beautiful. That's beautiful. But what's so wrong about it is that it's three layers of jello with raw carrots, raw cabbage, and raw spinach in it. <laughs> Which, even as we were eating it, kind of boggled our mind. Why? Was this the intention of the recipe? The worst layer was probably the cabbage layer, the cabbage and orange jello layer. The question in all of this that I tried to answer and failed was why? But seriously, it, when we think back to our family histories, when I talk to someone, someone's always like, oh, yeah, well, my grandmother, blah, blah, blah. Even my own family, my own grandmother, every single Thanksgiving made a, um, it was a cabbage and carrot mold. And she was the only one that ate it, but she made it Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving. How did Jell-O do it? How did they trick an entire generation of women into making these foods. I feel like that's a real culinary history question because clearly it happened. Does anyone have any ideas? Because really, I'm dying to know. Nothing. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle for the ages, and I cannot, cannot, cannot figure it out. The only thing that I learned through doing this is that it was a reality. People, 
I mean, who knows what they were putting into those pamphlets that people were actually making? Um, who knows if anyone was testing corned beef mold? But there's indication that people made these, and I don't know why. I guess when I started, I thought that I was going to uncover some sort of culinary secret. You know, that these were so popular in the middle of the century because they were so good and so fascinating and so textural and so wonderful. And that by cooking these for a week, I was going to revive the jello mold. The fact is, they're horrible. They're horrible. All except one. And I know you know you come here and we, we give you samples, and at this point you, you're probably quaking in your seats because someone I occasionally don't feed you the best of what we made, but in fact feed you the oddest or the worst, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fortunately, what you're going to be eating tonight comes from this 1976 uh, recipe book. And oddly, it was past predicted, if that's possible, by my, my weed-loving ex-roommate. One day he was good and high, and he was sitting on the couch watching Judge Judy, as one does at four on a weekday. And he turns to me, because I was also watching Judge Judy, <laughs> and he says, what if you baked a cake, and then you, you poked holes in the cake, and then over the top, you poured jello over the top? Wouldn't that be delicious? And I said, no, Jeff, that would be disgusting. That is a disgusting idea for a dessert. It was in that 1976. <laughs> I don't know how I can profit from his ability to predict the past, but if I could, I would. It's called poke cake, and it was, it's a real thing, and that's exactly how you make it. He invented that out of his weed-soaked brain, but it's, but it's a real, real, real thing, and out of all the things that I made in that week of Jell-O, it was the best, by far. So this evening, I brought poke cake. Yay! Thanks, everybody. Time to learn a little bit more about Jell-O. Morning. Much of this talk will terrify you, but you'll be okay. So first up, we have a terrifying word, hydrocolloids. What does that mean? I was scared of this word for a really long time. And I was like, okay, they use it a lot in molecular gastronomy. They talk about it with gelatin. Guess I have to talk about gelatin whenever it's time uh, for MSG next month. So I'm going to look it up and research it. It's basically stuff that's in another thing, thanks to water. Uh, you have a colloid, and that'll be, say, uh, if a volca volcano erupted and there was soot suspended in the air, that's a colloid. You have a hydrocolloid. Hydroid, hydro is just water. So what do you need for jello powder to work? Water. So it just ends up being something, something that is suspended in something else. And then in the end, it ends up making it kind of wiggly or jiggly or ooey or gooey. And how it does this is uh, jello is a protein, and, uh, or gelatin is a protein. And the way it works is as it cools down, you have all of these little crazy proteins all hanging out in the water. And as it gets cooler and cooler and cooler, the proteins connect up with each other, get a little bit entangled like a knot and it traps the water in all of the in-between spaces. So you end up having the water's trapped, it's blocked from hanging out with the other water, 
by the proteins, you end up with something that's nice and solid. But that doesn't explain why Jello was so awesome to eat. Uh, those are fun, right? I think they should be orange, they're red, don't know why. Um, so like Sarah was talking about before, originally it was made out of like horses and all of that, but these days we use acid in pig skin in order to make gelatin, which is one reason why it's so delicious. The other reason is its melting point. The awesome thing about Jell-O is that it melts at like 98 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you know anything about Charles Barkley, you know that 98.6 degrees is the same as a sweltering jungle, and also the temperature of the human body. So as soon as you put Jell-O in your mouth, it just melts. It's like ice cream, you know? There's, there's nothing better than that. And if there was something better than that, it would be auger or agar, or whatever you want to call it, however you want to pronounce those A's, but the important thing to know is that this is a gelatin-like substance, um, but it's, uh, it's from Malaysia, and agar is a shortened form of the official Malaysian name, which is agar-agar, because <laughs> saying it twice just makes you sound silly. So the cool thing about agar is that it's made from red algae, and the most important thing about everything that's not gelatin is what color algae it comes from. Because everything comes from algae, whether it's green or it's red or it's brown, everything is algae, this one, red algae. But the thing that it can do is if you make jello shots and you take them out of the fridge and you let them sit around, they get kind of melty. Not the case with agar. You make all kinds of desserts out of this in Japan on Mitsu. Um, it's those little gelatinous cubes. You got some beans, some red bean paste, some mochi in there. Um, but the thing is, is they don't melt uh, the agar, like the agar gelatin, until 185 degrees. It's awesome. So you could actually have hot jello if you wanted to make something out of agar, but the downside is that as soon as you start to eat it, instead of melting in your mouth like Jell-O does, it just kind of turns into tinier and tinier grains. And I mean, like, maybe you're into that. Maybe it's fun. Like, Japan is totally into it. Um, but it's, it's an interesting experience. But the reason why it's the best experience, we touched on this in the last presentation for a second, but because it is hotter than your body temperature, you can totally make, if you put a lot of it, um, this is a cup I made out of agar, just by taking the agar sol solution and just like twirling it around in a cup. Like I know everyone has fancy silicon molds and blah, 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 and I'm like, look, I'm hanging out at the brainery, I don't have any money, all I have is a plastic cup and some agar that I've you know, dissolved in water. I'm just gonna spin it around in a cup. And it totally holds liquid, and I can totally hold it with my hand, and because my hand is less than 185 degrees Fahrenheit, it doesn't melt the cup. So if you ever want to make your own uh, glassware out of Jell-O, or not Jell-O, agar, you can totally do it yourself. You find agar in uh, Chinatown a lot, but if you don't, we talked about this before, you can buy it on the internet. Google it, you'll find it. Um, and New York City based, that's amazing. But the other thing that is great about 
agar is not something you eat. Well, maybe you eat it, but you probably shouldn't. Is is what's used in petri dishes, and you think, why is it used? In, aren't those cool? That's those, those. That's not real bacteria in there. Um, I looked for it on Flickr, and I was like, this is cool. And I was like, oh, I feel kind of gypped. And I was like, no, this is cool. So what happened was, there was a woman, and she had some friends. Her name was Lena Hessa, and she was talking to her friends, and she's like, man. My husband sure does put bacteria on gelatin plates every now and again. And they were like, do you know about agar? Because we just went to Asia, and it's a crazy thing that's just like gelatin. And she was like, no, I didn't know about that. So she went and she talked to her husband, whose name no one knows. Everyone knows Lena Hesse, no one knows who her husband is. And she was like, hey, maybe you should try this stuff instead of gelatin. And he was like, what a good idea. And then he talked to his boss. And his boss is the guy who ended up taking this idea of using agar instead of gelatin, and he isolated the uh, he isolated tuberculosis, what causes tuberculosis out of this. Um, and the reason why it was so easy is because if you tried to culture bacteria with gelatin, man, who doesn't love to eat calves' ankles or whatever? So the bacteria would just eat all of the gelatin and digest the proteins and turn it into like a sloppy mess. Whereas if you're using agar, it's all these complicated uh, carbohydrates instead of proteins, and you end up having bacteria that cannot digest them, and so they just kind of hang out on top of it. And they eat the nutrients, but they don't eat the agar, so it just stays very, very solid, and you can examine everything that goes on. And you're like, great, so I can make fake dinner plates out of agar, but what's another fake thing that I can make out of something gelatinous? Counterfeit eggs. Who here has heard of counterfeit eggs? Yeah, yeah right? Like two people, so you should be scared. Um, so in 2006, the Internet Journal of Toxicology, which is the most highly esteemed journal on all of the internet, <laughs> Uh, reported there were fake eggs being found in China, and this was all over the, the internet. Probably not like the important parts of the internet, but maybe like, like Yahoo Malaysia, where they were like, oh my god, we found a bunch of fake eggs. Um, and so this is the same guy who discovered this, also discovered that they were making soy sauce out of human hair. It's not true, guys. So it came out of China, um, and there were all these blog posts about how to detect fake eggs. And this is, this is actually from, not to trick you, but this is from a Malaysian news article, I believe from Yahoo Malaysia. But the idea was that they seized a bunch of eggs, and they were like, all right, guys, we're going to teach you how to detect fake eggs. And here's how you do it. Number one, the fake egg shell is a little bit shinier than the real egg, but it's not very noticeable. Number two, when you touch the fake egg with your hand, eh, it's a little bit rougher than a real egg. Number three, if you shake the fake egg, it will make some noise. Not like a real egg makes noise. Number four, it smells a little bit like raw meat if it's a real egg. I don't know why a real egg would smell like raw meat. Number five, you tap it lightly. A real egg makes a more crisp sound than a fake egg. And shortly after opening the fake egg, the egg yolk and the egg white will melt together. And when frying a fake egg, the yolk will spread without being touched. So you're like, great. 
this is golden. I, I am prepared to not eat a fake egg. But I read this and I'm like, I want to make a fake egg. Like this sounds this sounds amazing, especially because they it's all poisonous. Um, so it's my white whale, and I go searching for it, and I'm searching for it. And there are a lot of uh, like news reports on YouTube about this. And my favorite one was it was an English dub. I think it was a, a British dubbing of a Japanese TV show with Chinese like re-subtitles. So this was originally Japanese, and then it got put on Chinese television, and then it got put on British television. So it has to be real. <laughs> and so they go around looking for someone to tell them about where they can get these fake eggs or where they can make these fake eggs. And someone's like, no, no, I don't know anything about this. And then someone else is like, oh, you want to know about fake eggs? Maybe I'll tell you about it. And then they cut to the shot of this man who's smoking a cigarette. He's on the phone and he's like, I can't tell you about fake eggs. <laughs> we tried to get more detail from him. And then he goes, no, I can't tell. And they say, he refused to talk. And I'm like, why did you taunt me with this picture of this clearly menacing man who's poisoning everybody with these fake eggs? But you're not getting anything out of him. Um, so I found the Rosetta Stone of fake eggs. And it was in the Internet Journal of Toxicology, thankfully. It was, it was, they hid it from Google, the actual article that had been published. Um, but if you go on the like Internet Archive, you can track it down, you can find it, and you get this amazing image that's just a bunch of text. I don't know, but it goes through it and it says, all right, sodium alga acid and water, crystallize some stuff, gelatin, mix in bifon, sodium benzoate, blah, 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 put some aside for the egg yolk, food coloring agents, egg yolks, plastic mode, that should be mold. Uh, there's the egg white, soak it in liquid, liquid calcium chloride to stabilize the shape. Complete the whole egg, wait for the formation of the egg. Surround the whole egg with paraffin. Oh my God, how complicated is this? How many chemicals are in this? This is incredible. So the ingredients, there's a pretty cool website that took this and translated it into English. And it said things like, this includes benzoic acid, which is harmful to the brain and nerve cells, may cause liver disease, spelled incorrectly, and senile dementia. I thought you got senile and demented anyway when you got old, but apparently it causes it. Uh, cellulose causes metabolism disorders. Alum may cause nerve and liver disease, may affect ability to produce blood. <laughs> Who knew? And amino acids cause a metabolism disorder. So if you have any amino acids in your body, just get rid of them. Get rid of them. They're very dangerous. And so if, if you guys have been here before, you know that if I'm confronted with a list of things that will kill me, the next thing I have to do is make it and then put it in my body and defy science. So the first thing is this, this sodium alga, what do they call it, sodium alga acid sodium alginates. And as you can see, this is a very fancy container of it. And that's because it's totally used in molecular gastronomy all the time. And it's used for something called uh, spherification, where uh, you extract it from a brown seaweed, which is not agar, comes from red seaweed. This comes from brown seaweed. 
And when it's in the presence of a calcium, it ends up gelling. So imagine if you had jello and you could never successfully make it unless you put it in milk. That, that's a decent way to think about this. Um, so what you do is you take it and you put it in a calcium solution and you get tiny spheres. Now, I don't know if you know about eggs, but I know about eggs. And the inside of an egg is a sphere called a yolk. And then the outside of an egg is a sphere called a white. So I think we're on a good path by trying to channel these fancy pants molecular gastronomy people into the land of underground Chinese fake goods. So um, this whole sodium alginate plus calcium chloride thing, you might be thinking, oh, this is science. I don't need to care about this. I don't need to know about this. Who likes olives? Everyone. Who likes to go to a bar and they're like, give me all the olives in the drinks? Right. So that little pimento that's hiding out in the middle of an olive is actually they inject a slurry that has sodium alginate in it and then they wash it with calcium chloride and the calcium bonds to the sodium and then it ends up solidifying that tiny little red thing that is in the middle of your olive. So you've totally been duped and I'm real sorry. Um, this process was discovered back in the 50s, but it didn't get popular until like the 90s, the 2000s, uh, when molecular gastronomy started becoming a thing. And they were like, we discovered something amazing. And someone else was like, this has been going on in like Spanish kitchens for forever. And they were like, no, we discovered something amazing. We're going to sell it to you for like $40 a plate and you're going to love it. So sodium alginate it gels or solidifies or turns into a sphere um, in the presence of calcium. Next up, you have methyl cellulose, which is another ingredient. Methyl cellulose is kind of gelatin's evil twin. And what do you have to do to jello in order to make it solidify? Make it cold. What do you have to do to methyl cellulose or carboxymethyl cellulose, as these really cool containers from China, CMC, will tell you? Um, you actually have to heat it up and then it solidifies. And I don't know if you guys know about eggs once again, but when you heat up an egg, it ends up solidifying into a cooked egg. And so I'm thinking that carboxymethylcellulose is a good way that once it turns into a sphere with a yolk and blah, 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 you heat it up and then it gets solid and then you're totally tricked into thinking it's an egg. This stuff is not found in nature though, unlike everything else. They just take cellulose and they run it through some processes and then you end up with carboxymethylcellulose. It's in all kinds of stuff too that you might use every day, such as <laughs> KY jelly, the number one ingredient in KY jelly, methylcellulose. Not the number one ingredient in a McDonald's milkshake, but if you go onto the McDonald's website and you look at the nutrition data, probably 50 to 75% of their goods have cellulose gum in it. And it's just, it acts as a thickener um, it does things like if you heat up an apple pie and it has methyl cellulose in it, it keeps the apple pie filling from running out because it's gelling as it's getting hotter. So instead of getting runny, like a jello shot in your mouth, it ends up just getting nice and solid and cool. So even though these are both made of carboxymethyl cellulose, you probably shouldn't mix them together, but do whatever you want. And let's follow those crazy instructions and make a fake egg. Yes, it's all one word actually, it's uh, popular enough. 
So the first thing you need is a mold. And the way that you make a mold is not by putting an egg here and an egg yolk here. You go to Lowe's and you buy a bunch of uh, plaster of Paris, which no one knows where it is in Lowe's, and you have to find it yourself. <laughs> and you, you carve a sweet potato until it is in the shape of an egg and an egg yolk, and then you push it into here, and then you spray it with a bunch of uh, shellac, and you hope that shellac isn't poisonous. The next step, you have to mix all of your ingredients. So you're mixing gelatin, you're mixing methyl cellulose, you're mixing uh, sodium alginate all into whatever you want to make your egg out of. This, this was I was going to make a, uh, a coffee egg that had coffee in the middle and milk all around it. But what does milk have in it? Calcium. So you can't really use this process because as soon as you put the sodium alginate in it, it just gets all goopy and gooey and gross because it reacts with the calcium that's in it. So it's really hard to dissolve like 10,000 different powders into a liquid. So you use an immersion blender or a real blender and uh, you blend it up and then you let it sit there um, and then you're ready. Next up, you take calcium chloride or calcium lactate, both of them. What do you need to know about them? It's just calcium. It's going to react with the sodium alginate and make a little bit of a membrane around the outside. You put it in water and it dissolves. And that's all you do with that. Now you have to make a yolk. Now, the number one ingredient in a fake egg yolk is an egg or like healthy things and nutritional yeast or whatever. Well, the number one ingredient is just that creepy water that we made. But the number two ingredient is food coloring because it has to look like a yolk. So you, you take the solution, you put a lot of food coloring in it, and you can't tell, but that is absolutely yolk orange. You put the yolk in the mold, and then you put the mold in that crazy water that you made. Now, what's going to happen when you take this yolk and put it in the calcium? All the calcium that's in the water on the outside is going to gel with the outside of the, the sodium alginate that's in the yolk, and it's going to solidify the outside, but because there's no sodium on, or no calcium on the inside, it's going to be like a, like a milky ball on the inside. So you let it down in there, and the yolk just floats right up. So wonderful. You make a ton of yolks, and you make a really good joke. The yolk's on us. After that, you have to make the egg white. You make the egg white by partially filling the egg white side with egg white, which is just the same stuff. It's just not colored. You pop the yolk in the middle. You cover up the yolk, just like a chicken makes its eggs. And then you dip it in the same solution. And then it solidifies the outside of the egg. And bam, there be eggs. You have one sphere suspended inside of another sphere. And the inside of it is goopy in the exact same way that the inside of an egg is goopy. But what are we missing? The shell. The shell. So according to the internet, there are a few different ways you can do this, but the way that seemed best was you take a mixture of uh, paraffin wax and either gypsum or some sort of calcium. You thread a needle through your fake egg, and you kind of dip it in there, and you keep doing it until 
it ends up solidifying. So you end up with a wax-colored egg. Let's go back to this guy for a second, the guy holding up the, the two undifferentiated eggs. One of those is a real egg. One of those is a fake egg. Can you tell the difference? No, you can't tell the difference. You should have said that. But if I were to present you with the egg that I made, you could probably <laughs> tell the difference. So, so there's a reason that China has this market cornered, and it's because they can do things better than I can. And it's very sad, um, but what are you going to do? And what you are going to do is you're going to peel all this creepy, ugly wax off of the outside of the egg that doesn't make it look like an egg at all, and you're going to fry it. And let me tell you, that looks like an egg. Or it looks-ish like an egg. You know, close enough. Like, you'll be fine. Um, I made one earlier today that was a, a gimlet. Uh, fake egg where the very, very inside was gin and the outside was like a lime-flavored sugar syrup. And the as I was frying it, like the bottom got all like crispy and caramelized and like it was delicious. <laughs> so I think that people in China should step out of the land of making, you know, fake real eggs and just go into like custom, sexy, fancy alcoholic eggs. So lessons learned. <laughs> Number one, gelatin is not from boiling pigskins in acid for hours. It just comes from the sky. So eat it without worrying about where it comes from. Number two, don't call it agar. Call it agar, 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 because that's its one true name. You can control it if you do that. Number three, unlike counterfeit eggs, counterfeit bags do not give you metabolism disorders. So stick the hangout on Canal Street only for the things that you can carry and not for the things that you can eat. And that's all.